Hi, I'm Brad Constantine, and this is a Come Follow Me podcast of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Although this is not an official podcast of the church, every effort has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. This year's study is the Book of Mormon. Each week, a new summary podcast of that week's Book of Mormon chapters will be released. But if you want a more detailed analysis of each individual chapter, those will also be available to listen to. I hope this Come Follow Me resource will be helpful to you. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast so you'll be notified each week of a new episode. I hope you like this uh, format. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the Come Follow Me podcast of the Book of Mormon. This is going to be lesson number 12, and it will cover Jacob chapters 5 through 7 and the time period of March 16th through the 22nd. So I'm not going to read the entire uh, Jacob chapter 5. That would take a long time. In fact, uh, I've already done that on another podcast. If you want to see the details or listen to the details more of Jacob chapter 5, you can find that on the website. But I'm going to get into kind of a summary and brief explanations of the allegory of the olive tree that we're going to cover in Jacob chapter 5. Joseph Fielding Smith said that in brief, the allegory records the history of Israel down through the ages, the scattering of the tribes to all parts of the earth, their mingling with or being grafted in the wild olive trees, or in other words, the mixing of the blood of Israel among the Gentiles by which the great blessings and promises of the Lord to Abraham are fulfilled. After Abraham had been proved even to the extent of being willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, the Lord blessed him with the greatest of blessings. Um, Zenus's remarkable parable portrays how, as branches of the olive tree, Israelites were carried to all parts of the earth, the Lord's vineyard, and grafted into the wild olive trees, the Gentile nations. Thus they are fulfilling the promise <clears throat> that the Lord had made. Today, Latter-day Saints are going to all parts of the world as servants in the vineyard to gather this fruit and lay it in store for the time of the coming of the Master. This parable is one of the most enlightening and interesting in the Book of Mormon. How can any person read it without feeling the inspiration of this ancient prophet? Uh, this is probably one of the better evidences also of the truth of the, that Joseph Smith translated this because he couldn't have come up with this on his own. Now, in the Institute Manual, it gives us a key to some of the interpretation of the images that we'll see in the, in the allegory. So I just want to tell you what those are. That way it'll be easier to understand it when you're reading it. The vineyard is the world. The master of the vineyard is Jesus Christ. The servant are the Lord's prophets. That's us. The tame olive tree is the house of Israel, or the Lord's covenant people. The wild olive tree are Gentiles. The branches are groups of people. The roots of the tame olive tree are the, is the gospel covenant and promises made by God that constantly give life and sustenance to the tree. The fruit of the tree is the lives or works of men, digging and pruning and fertilizing. Uh, that's the Lord's work with his children, which seeks to persuade them to be obedient and produce good fruit. Transplanting the branches is the scattering of groups throughout the world or restoring them to their original position. Grafting is the process of spiritual rebirth wherein one is joined to the covenant. Decaying branches are wickedness and apostasy, and casting the branches into the fire is the judgment of God. <clears throat> one of the basic things to understand about the allegory is that there are five time periods talked about and four different groups or geographic locations of people. So marking the scriptures might be helpful uh, to do that, to be able to identify which group is which. Um, I'll just kind of give you a brief uh, overview of the groups. There's four groups. There's a tame olive tree in the land of Israel. This geographical area is easy to identify as ancient Israel or the land of Palestine located in and around Jerusalem, the holy city. Group two, it says the poorest spot of ground in the vineyard, not easily identifiable as to where it is. 
it is far afield from Israel. Could it be the British Isles? Could it could be a general category referring to a certain type of area where this branch was taken? Group number three is a poorer spot even than group two, not easily identifiable as to where it is. It too is far afield from Israel. Uh, this could be the north countries where the 10 tribes were led around 721 BC. Also could be a general category of land where the scattered tribes were scattered, uh, a barren land without the covenants and blessings of the Lord. Verse, uh, group four is a good spot of ground, even choice above all other lands. This land too is, is greatly separated geographically from the mother tree or the land of Israel. This land is where the children of Lehi were led. It is the land of the Nephites and the Lamanites. It is likely not only Central America, but the continents of North and South America next to the land of Israel. This is the easiest location to identify. Um, and then there's five different time periods. There's the uh, time when Israel began as a, as a nation. Uh, then there's a long period of time and Israel is scattered. There's another long period of time where um, it appears to be around the time of Jesus's mortal ministry. Uh, then there's another time uh, where there's uh, the, re the, the dispensation of the fullness of times. And then the last time was is during the millennium. And so those are the basic five periods of time. Uh, it'll be interesting when we get the brass plates to be able to read this again and see what the original uh, uh, scriptures meant or read at the time. <clears throat> uh, Joseph Fielding Smith said, we have something in the Book of Mormon that if we did not have other truth expressed in it would be sufficient evidence of the divinity of this book. I have reference to the fifth chapter of Jacob. I think that as many as 99 out of every 100 who read the Book of Mormon read this parable through without grasping the fullness and meaning of it. And I think this is one of the greatest passages in the Book of Mormon. No matter how many times you have read this Book of Mormon, take a few minutes at some convenient time and sit down and just read carefully every word in the fifth chapter of the Book of Jacob. No greater parable was ever recorded. I tell you, my brothers and sisters, Joseph Smith did not write it. That was written by the inspiration of the Almighty. When you read that chapter through, if you cannot say in your soul, this is absolutely a revelation from God, then there is something wrong with you. And that was by Joseph Fielding Smith. So, like I said, I'm not going to get into the details of this particular chapter just because there's too much in it. Uh, the allegory is uh, very significant, but I will uh, explain a few things uh, as we go through it. Um, <clears throat> let's see, there's a couple things here by uh, Elder Holland that I want to read. Um, Elder Holland said, "This is there is much more here than simply the unraveling of convoluted Israelite history. Of greater significance in this allegory is the benevolent view of God that it provides. He is portrayed here as one who repeatedly, painstakingly, endlessly tries to save the work of his hands and in moments of great disappointment holds his head in his hands and weeps. <clears throat> what could I have done more for my vineyard, he says. This allegory is a declaration of divine love, of God's unceasing effort as a father laboring on behalf of his children. As one writer's noted, Zenos's allegory ought to take its place Beside the parable of the prodigal son, both stories make the Lord's mercy so movingly memorable. <clears throat> and so, as we discuss, or as you read the book of chapter 5 and the details of it, uh, you'll see the, that the Lord, his hand is in, in so much of this uh, that he's, you know, he's not a passive God. He's actively involved in our lives, and you can see that in this parable. <clears throat> the work of gathering goes forth, he talks about in this parable, scattering and gathering of Israel. <clears throat> I want to read this one paragraph here by John Welch. She says, I cannot complete this discussion of the allegory of the olive tree without returning to the beginning. The reason Jacob gave the allegory. 
How can we be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? If I were writing in good Hebrew style, I would expect the reader at this point to know from the allegory itself and the above discussion how reconciliation takes place. But I am not, and I would be untrue to my own heritage if I did not at the least or at the best of my ability clearly explain how we can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. As the allegory suggests, the process is deceptively simple and easy. Remain attached long enough to, your, to our roots. The scriptural heritage revealed by the God of Israel that the healing influence of divine direction of a knowledge of the true Messiah, our Lord and Redeemer, can change us from a twig bearing bitter fruit to a natural twig bearing good fruit. It does not matter whether our scriptural heritage is planted in a good spot on the earth or a bad one. We can bear fruit under the loving and wise care of the Lord of the vineyard. As Limhi, a man who himself had groped for reconciliation, found out, said, If we will turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart and put our trust in him and serve him with all diligence of mind, if we do this, he will, according to his own will and pleasure, succor us, nourish us, and save us from destruction. Only our pride or self-will can prevent us from producing good fruit, thereby precipitating our own pruning from the tree. In language more related to the allegory than a first glance might suggest, Jacob stated the formula both simply and eloquently. How merciful is our God unto us, for he remembereth the house of Israel, both roots and branches. And he stretches forth his hands unto them all the day long, and they are a stiff-necked and a gainsaying people. But as many as will not harden their hearts shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I beseech of you in words of soberness that ye would repent and come with full purpose of heart and cleave unto God as he cleaveth unto you. And so that's a, a good description or a summary of the allegory of the olive tree. Verse 6, then, is Jacob's uh, brief explanation of the, the allegory. Uh, he mentions in verse 4, how merciful is our God unto us, and he, his hands are stretched out all the day long, and that he, he longs to save us, he wants to save us, if we just will come unto him. Now, uh, Jacob thinks in the end of chapter 6, he says, Finally, I bid you farewell until I shall meet you before the pleasing bar of God. So Jacob thought that his uh, writing was finished, but he has an experience a few years later uh, that he's going to open the small plates back up again and write an experience that uh, he's going to uh, want. And this, again, because the Book of Mormon is written for us, uh, he writes this to us. So he's going to have this experience with Sherem, who is uh, what he, he would call an antichrist. Uh, he comes among the people preaching that there will be no Christ, uh, that nobody can know the future. Uh, he was a very learned man. It says in verse 4 he was learned that he had a perfect knowledge of the language uh, and that he uses flattery among the people to uh, convince them of his truth. Um, and he'd hoped to come to Jacob, uh, hoping that he could shake him from the faith because if he could convince Jacob that he's wrong, that he would be able to convince everybody else. Um, and then in verse 7, Sherem says, I declare that you cannot know of things uh, of things to come. Uh, wouldn't he have had to have received a revelation for that, to know of, that he couldn't know of things to come? Um, I think that uh, these people that preach against Christ are not either intellectually honest or they're just flat out dishonest uh, because they, they're contradicting themselves. Verse 8, Behold, the Lord God poured in his spirit into my soul, meaning Jacob, insomuch that I did confound him in all his words. And I said, Deniest thou the Christ who should come? And he said, If there should be a Christ, I would not deny him. Now, this is obviously a lie, because uh, we'll find out later. I know that there is no Christ, neither has been, nor ever will be. How, does, how would he know that if he hadn't received a revelation? 
And then Jacob says, believest thou in the scriptures? And he said, yea. And he says, then you don't understand them because the, te the scriptures all testify of Christ. Uh, he says, and this is not all has been made manifest unto me for I have heard and seen. So Jacob has seen the Lord and knows that he is true and real. And so he's testifying using his knowledge uh, to bear witness here. And he's using three witnesses, the scriptures, the prophets and the Holy Ghost against, uh, against Sherem. Uh, and then Sherem says, uh, show me a sign by this power of the Holy Ghost uh, in which you know so much. So he's kind of taunting him here. And Jacob says, uh, I said unto him, what am I that I should tempt God to show unto thee a sign uh, of things which thou knowest to be true? So he, he is again showing him or telling him that I know that you know these things are true. Uh, and yet you're still continuing to deny them. Uh, but he says, uh, nevertheless, not my will be done, but if, if God shall smite thee, let that be a sign unto thee that he has power both in heaven and in earth, and also that Christ shall come, and thy will, O Lord, be done and not mine. So he's, he's letting the Lord be the one to decide if this is going to happen or not. Um, and so uh, Sherem um, is going to start to do a little backpedaling here. Uh, it came to pass that when I, Jacob, in verse 15, spoke these words, the power of the Lord came upon him, insomuch that he fell to the earth. And it came to pass that he was nourished for the space of many days. And so Sherem is uh, struck down here. Verse 16, it came to pass that he said unto the people, Gather together on the morrow, for I shall die. Uh, and then 17, it came to pass that on the morrow the multitude were gathered together, and he spake plainly unto them, and denied the things that he had, had taught them, and confessed the Christ and the power of the Holy Ghost and the ministering of angels. And so he's uh, telling them that all those things that he'd been teaching them was 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 wrong, was a, was a lie, and that he is now um, understanding the truth a little bit better. Verse 19, he said, I fear lest I have committed the unpardonable sin, for I have lied unto God. Now, Sherem is doing something that a son of perdition would not do, and that's uh, repenting. Now, whether he's in the celestial kingdom or not, I don't know. But, um, but Joseph Smith said this, Though the ultimate fate of Sherem is not known to us, whether, for instance, he will come forth in the resurrection of the terrestrial or the celestial kingdom, this we do not. This we do know that deathbed repentance does not have within it the seeds of everlasting life. His sin is not unpardonable. He will not be numbered among the sons of perdition, for he still possessed a soul capable of repentance, which disposition is wholly alien to a son of perdition. And so, because he began at least the repentance process here, uh, we know that he's at least not a son of perdition. Um, and then after that. Uh, it came to pass in verse 20, when he said these words, he gave up the ghost. So he died as soon as he had uh, borne testimony to this. And then uh, Jacob then, or the multitude, it says, witnessed what he had said. And uh, they were overcome too, and they fell to the earth. Now this thing was pleasing to Jacob, for he, for he had requested it of the Heavenly Father that this would be an answer to his prayers. And uh, it came to pass that the peace and love of God was restored among the people again. And they searched the scriptures and... Uh, and found favor in the eyes of God. And then Jacob says in 27, I, Jacob, saw that I must soon go down to my grave, wherefore I said unto my son Enos, take these plates. And I told him the things which my father Nephi had commanded me, and he promised obedience unto the command. So now the plates are being passed down to Enos. Now I want you to notice something at the end of the chapter here that occurs that's uh, very controversial, quote unquote. Uh, he says, I make an end of my writing upon these plates, which writing has been small, and to the reader I bid farewell, hoping that many of my brethren may read my words. Brethren, adieu. So he, Joseph Smith in his translation uses here a French word, 
Now, there were some anti-LDS critics of the Book of Mormon that have raised questions as to how Jacob could possibly have used such a word as adieu when this word clearly comes from the French language, which was not developed until hundreds of years after the time of Jacob. Now, this is kind of a silly argument, but uh, some critics evidently overlooked the fact that the Book of Mormon is translation literature, and Joseph Smith felt free in his translation to use any words familiar to himself and his readers that would best convey the meaning of the original author. It is interesting to note that there is a Hebrew word which has essentially the same meaning in Hebrew as the word adieu in French. Both of these words are much more than a simple farewell. They include the idea of a blessing. Would it be unreasonable to remind these critics that none of the words contained in the English translation of the book of Jacob were used by Jacob himself? These words all come from the English language, which did not come until existence long after Jacob's time. That was by Daniel Ludlow. So the fact that he's using a French word here to convey the idea of a farewell. Uh, in French, adieu means to God, literally translated. And so he's giving a blessing here uh, that, they, that he is committing them to God. Um, in the end of his uh, writings here. So this argument that uh, anti-Mormon or anti-LDS critics have is just kind of silly in its, in its content. I bear testimony to the truth of these things, and as mentioned in previous podcasts, this is translated material. And I bear testimony to that, that this is true, the Book of Mormon is true, and Joseph Smith was a true prophet. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.